Hey, it's Dr. Sarah and Alicia here, and you are listening to the Pregnancy for Professionals podcast. Our goal is to bring forward evidence-based information from all disciplines, supporting pregnant people through their journey to becoming new parents. From physicians to midwives, nurses to physiotherapists, and everyone in between. Make sure to fill out the quick survey in the show notes to let us know which topics you are interested in learning about and to make sure we are serving you, our maternity care provider community, well. Don't forget, the information on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Please consult with your team and your community for individual medical decisions that need to be made. Check us out on Instagram at pregnancy for professionals to find informative and educational posts for both you and that you can use for your patients. Welcome to the Pregnancy for Professionals podcast. Dr. Michelle Murray is joining me today from Hamilton, Ontario, where she works. Well, she might be in Burlington in her home. And we are going to do a podcast today on preventing preterm birth. So, Michelle, why don't you get started on telling us a little bit about yourself and what you like to do outside of medicine as well. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you today. Uh, so I work as a high-risk obstetrician, and so that means that I focus my practice on either patients who have underlying issues that may make their pregnancies more complex, or baby who have complications in pregnancy that might need some specialized care after birth. I have been working at McMaster for almost 10 years in that capacity, and one of the other hats I wear is as the program director of the Obstetrics and Gynecology Residency Program, so really invested in education and interprofessional care and so glad to be here to foster that interest that I have myself here today. Outside of the hospital, I am a mom to two boys, and uh, we also have a golden retriever. One of my interests outside of work is uh, reading for fun. So I always have a book on the go and just like to use that as a little escape from uh, the day-to-day -day just realities of work. Uh, so I like to explore lots of different areas of fiction when I'm uh, not working at the hospital. Awesome. Thank you. What's it, what's your book on the go now? Right now, I'm reading a book by Christian Hanna called uh, Firefly Lane. It's, it was actually a Netflix series, which I didn't realize when I started reading, but it's a, just a fun book about the journey of a, a group of um, friends uh, over the course of their life. Oh, awesome. So far, so good? Yeah. It's a, a very compelling, I would say. Perfect. All right. Why don't we get into it? So first, let's talk a little bit about preterm birth and how do we define preterm birth? Yeah, so preterm birth is any delivery that takes place prior to 37 weeks in a pregnancy and it can be for a variety of different reasons. The most common reason why people deliver preterm is because they've gone into labor on their own, so spontaneous preterm uh, birth. The other group that accounts for the biggest proportion of people who deliver preterm are people who break their water early and then go on to deliver. Other complications like preeclampsia, et cetera, make up the, the rest of the, the group, but spontaneous preterm labor and PPROM would be the two largest contributors to preterm birth. Right. And then so the hypertension or the preeclampsia might be that we would recommend they go into preterm birth or help put them into preterm birth, right? So yeah. if they're so sick or baby's not growing and it's safer for mom and babe to have baby out, then we would recommend an induction of labor or cesarean section, whatever the mode of birth would be from a health point of view. So that is iatrogenic preterm birth. Exactly. I messed that up in our last podcast. So I learn sometimes. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Less than 37 and zero weeks gestation. Correct. So why do we care? 
why do we care if somebody has preterm birth? What are the risks of that? One is just the proportion of the population that experiences preterm birth is not a small proportion. You know, preterm birth in different areas of the world can be significant. In Canada, with the access to health care that we have, it's still around 8%, which is a significant proportion of pregnancies. And the reasons why we care is for a number of different um, reasons, one of which is the impacts that prematurity can have on the baby who delivers and the complications, both from just a, a survivability point of view and then being alive with potential for long-term impacts related to that. So Certainly less than 28 weeks, uh, which would be considered, or sorry, 28 weeks or less, which would be considered a extreme preterm birth. Uh, the risks of survival and risks of long-term complications are really significant to be considering. And then we also have to consider the impacts from a cost of care perspective. So the, the weeks and months that these uh, children will spend in intensive care settings and uh, the significant level of care that they require is all quite vast. Yeah. And the other piece of the puzzle is the parental kind of stress associated with it, right? Having a baby yeah, in the absolutely. NICU is, is not an easy thing. And if you are in a more remote community or a community that doesn't provide care to, doesn't have the capacity to provide care to preterm babies, then that means that you're also moving into a different community without your supports around you. My second was born at 37 and zero. My first went post-dates and I was induced. My second was at 37 and zero and was in the NICU for three weeks. Right. Like it adds a ton of stress onto parents as well. So I think that's, you know, from a medical point of view, the biggest risk is to the baby. But from a parental point of view, that's a huge stressor as well. And so I think it's really important that we also recognize that that side of the picture yeah. as well. And so obviously the, the closer to term that baby is born, the the better the outcomes, the less time they spend in the hospital, the less costly their care is, the less stressful it is for the parents. So getting a baby to closer to term is a really valuable thing from every point of view. So not just avoiding 28 weeks, but if we can get somebody to 36 and a half as opposed to 33 in their first pregnancy, that's a huge improvement. Yeah, absolutely. What are risk factors for preterm birth? In obstetrics and gynecology, the first answer is always a previous history of preterm. So if it's happened before, there can be a risk of it happening again. And it does seem to be correlated with when in pregnancy it happened before. So the earlier in pregnancy you had a preterm birth before, the higher the risks are that there is a chance for recurrence in a future pregnancy. I think also the risk factors can include why did that delivery happen before? Is it something that has a risk of recurrence? And often it can. So spontaneous labor, breaking your water early, having high blood pressure complications, growth restriction, all of those things do have a risk of happening again. And so it's important to consider what interventions might be available to help reduce that risk of recurrence or what monitoring you can do to identify pregnancies that are at um, increased risk again. Otherwise, in addition to past pregnancy history risk factors, there are general risk factors that people can have. So we know that people who have Mullerian anomalies, which is where the shape of the uterus might be different than usual. Uh, so you may have just a, a unicornuate uterus, which is where the uterus is you know, sort of half of what it would usually be, or a bicornuate, which is where it's divided into two. That can limit uh, the ability to grow and um, maintain a pregnancy to term. People who have had procedures on their cervix, so whether they've had abnormal pap smears and they've needed to have uh, leap or cone biopsies, 
Those can be risk factors for preterm birth. So uh, factors like that, in addition to people who have underlying uh, chronic medical compli- medical issues, those can all be their own independent risk factors for things that can lead to preterm birth, whether it's iatrogenic or whether it's spontaneous. Can we talk a little bit more about cervix, the cervix, like cone biopsies and leaps and what the actual, I don't know if you actually know the numbers off the top of your head, but in terms of kind of risks? So in and of themselves, they probably don't increase the risk a lot having had just one procedure, but they can. So I think it's important that when somebody identifies that history, that at least getting a baseline assessment of the cervix at the time when you're doing an anatomy ultrasound is a perfect opportunity to stratify that level of risk. So if somebody's had a previous cervical surgery and at the time of the anatomy ultrasound, their baseline cervical is looking normal, which would be over 25 millimeters on ultrasound, then probably you can be more reassured that their risk is probably a bit lower compared to somebody who's flagging with a short cervix at that stage of their pregnancy. Okay, thank you. And then just another point that we sometimes see is we don't can't always see uterine differences, I like to call them, on ultrasound, right? And so sometimes at the time of cesarean section, if you went into labor at 35 weeks and had fetal distress and ended up with a cesarean section, that's sometimes when we diagnose those uterine difference and then bring that information forward to the next pregnancy. Right? Yeah, it's that's not, a great point. Our imaging is not always perfect. Sometimes people know going in, they've had imaging for whatever the reason, or they've had an MRI and it's clearly defined you know, uterine difference. But sometimes we just find out at the time of cesarean section, usually, because you can't really tell vaginal delivery. But then we can use that information for subsequent pregnancies as well. Yeah, that's an important point. In pregnancy, it's really hard to identify some of those differences in shapes of the uterus. You know, you might see a septum or you might have a sense of something. Outside of pregnancy is actually the most accurate time to diagnose those things, but you need to have a reason to look. And then other reasons maybe for preterm birth is multiples? Yep, that's right. Exactly. Twins. Twins have 50% risk of being born preterm. And then higher order multiples like triplets and beyond will be expected to deliver preterm. And then the other thing is what about, so I always think of it of anything that makes the uterus way bigger than it was the average, right? So polyhydramnios, does that have an increased risk of preterm birth? Yeah, so it can for a couple of reasons. Um, So one, the reason why there's extra fluid, it could be that there's something about the pregnancy that's not progressing as expected. And so that can be uh, a risk factor. Also, just as you mentioned, just sort of the physical impact of having extra fluid and extra pressure on um, the uterus can predispose people to going into labor, breaking their water early as well. Okay, awesome. Great. So we've chatted about what is preterm birth, why do we care, impact on the newborn and the family associated with said newborn, and kind of risk factors. Anything else that you wanted to add in for those points before we get to the next nitty-gritty of how do we prevent preterm birth, the magic question? I think we've covered most of the, the, the information that I can think of related to that, although it looks like you just have a new question. What about fibroids? So fibroids may, they may from different reasons. One one could be if they're impacting uh, normal growth uh, of the, the baby, then you're more likely to have growth restriction and more, more likely to potentially need to deliver early. So where in the uterus the fibroids located can be important. So if it's impacting the cavity of the uterus where the pregnancy is implanted. Otherwise, um, some fibroids, uh, as you mentioned, for other reasons, you know, anything that makes the uterus sort of bigger and more stretched out may potentially have uh, a risk for predisposing people to early delivery. So that can be a different reason as well. Sometimes fibroids can degenerate in pregnancy. It's unclear 
if that can be an independent risk factor for early birth, but it might be. Okay. And then the other thing we touched on, the iatrogenic, is the kind of the placenta. And if there's, you know, vasoprevia, sometimes recommendations are to deliver a little bit early because you don't want that risk of rupturing, et cetera. So there's a few other kind of things that, again, that's more of an iatrogenic cause of preterm birth. Okay, perfect. So how do we prevent preterm birth, Dr. Moray? The real answer is we're, we're only successful at predicting people who are going to deliver preterm about 50% of the time. It's a challenge for sure. I think we know preterm birth, as we have alluded to, has a number of different pathways. So things like inflammation, things like structural issues to do with the uterus and the cervix, things like other factors related to the pregnancy, multiples, et cetera, they all have a, a role in leading to preterm birth. So when I, I see somebody at my clinic and I know that they've delivered early, we really want to make sure that we dig into the details of what happened before to understand it as fully as possible. For people who are in that category of spontaneous unexplained preterm birth. You know, we don't know what happened, why it happened. We just know that it did happen. Some of the strategies I like to implement at the start of the pregnancy are to make sure that we have a urine culture to confirm that there's no evidence of a urinary tract infection, because we do know uh, with good quality evidence that urinary tract infections, particularly if untreated, can predispose people to uh, preterm birth. So screening and treating early in pregnancy is important. Also doing swabs, particularly for bacterial vaginosis, is probably what has the, the highest evidence. So for people with a previous unexplained preterm birth and a current finding of bacterial vaginosis, even if they don't have symptoms of it, have benefit for treating. So I uh, will make sure that we offer a swab to all patients at the start of their pregnancy, even without symptoms, to screen for bacterial vaginosis so that we can treat it. And just in terms uh, of the treatment recommendation for our physicians and midwifery and nursing colleagues who do more remote stuff and are caring for pregnant people early in pregnancy, what are we using? What is the recommendation timing-wise and actual treatment-wise for bacterial vaginosis in somebody who's screened positive who has a history of preterm delivery? Yeah. So you want to treat it at the time when you identify the bacterial vaginosis. The best evidence is to use oral metronidazole to treat it. The exact dose, I think, is 500 milligrams twice daily for a week, but confirming the SOGC guideline would help me to uh, make sure I'm giving correct information there. That sounds right in my brain as well. Sounds right. Yeah. There are some vaginal preparations, but for the prevention of preterm birth, the oral preparation has the best evidence behind it. Perfect. Thank you. And then you can also look at doing a test of cure afterwards to make sure that you actually have had resolution. Perfect. So you've you've done a urine early in pregnancy, make sure there's no asymptomatic bacteria and treated that if that is the case. You've done a swab for bacterial vaginosis and treated that if that is present. And again, these are in the population who has a history of preterm birth. We're talking about specifically here. That's Unexplained right. preterm birth, maybe explained. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And then we start to try and identify, okay, so for the person with unexplained preterm birth, we often don't have much information about what their cervix looked like in a previous pregnancy, but we can look prospectively in a future pregnancy to get more information on that. So we would recommend usually doing uh, serial assessments of the cervical length. Transvaginal ultrasound would give us the most clear pictures of the cervix. So we do recommend transvaginal over transabdominal imaging. And we would want to make sure that we're watching the cervix on a regular basis in a window where 
it may potentially shorten and that we have interventions that we can use to basically impact what's going on. So from a cervical length screening point of view, it's probably not valuable to look much before 16 weeks. Of course, taking in mind an individual patient's history and the timing of when things happened before, but 16 to 18 weeks is probably the timeline that you would want to start doing some cervical length monitoring. And then depending on what their cervical length measurement looks like, that can guide sort of the frequency of ongoing monitoring, but probably every about two weeks or so is a reasonable interval to follow up and see. Again, always guided by a patient's previous history and what's happened. In addition to that, another strategy that can be helpful to reduce the risk of unexplained previous preterm birth is considering the use of vaginal progesterone. So vaginal progesterone has evidence to suggest that it is probably the most effective strategy when you compare it to things like cervical cerclage or cervical pessary. Uh, versus expectant management. And so vaginal progesterone would be the other kind of standard recommendation for patients um, to consider using alongside doing uh, cervical length monitoring. And when would that start, that recommendation? Um, I know it's very patient-specific, but... It is, yeah. It, in general, the earliest I would usually start vaginal progesterone is sort of 16 to 18 weeks or so. Certainly by the time you're doing your, your anatomy, ultrasound is a reasonable time to start the vaginal progesterone and then I would usually continue it to about 34 to 36 just to try and reduce the risk of having uh, preterm birth. So if we get to pre get to 36 weeks and we're still on the progesterone, then it's reasonable to come off at that point. Perfect. And any kind of any risks, side effects, the goopiness is what I hear all the time. It's very goopy. But any other kind of concerns from a risk factor point of view of using vaginal progesterone? Yeah. So for the most part, most patients don't comment on kind of systemic uh, symptoms related to the using a progesterone suppository. I have had a few patients that do seem to be more prone. And so some of them note that they have increased constipation or increased fatigue or bloating. And when they're not on the progesterone, they do notice a difference in those symptoms. But for the most part, as you mentioned, the, the main uh, thing that patients will comment on is a change in their discharge, and sometimes just some irritation in the vaginal area. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, thank you. I'm going to go back to the ultrasound question. A question around the ultrasounds, I should say, is when do you stop doing those serial ultrasounds? Because in our center, usually it's about 32 weeks that we would stop doing those serial ultrasounds. Is that consistent with what you're doing in your center? So I think the best evidence suggests that probably beyond 28 weeks, the length of the cervix is less helpful to predict the patient who is more likely to deliver preterm. I think part of that is we know over the course of time, the cervix naturally does start to change in terms of its length. And so the number in and of itself probably gives you less information about that particular patient's risk compared to a short cervix that's flagged at the mid-trimester. Perfect. Because I know there's a lot of patient anxiety when they get discharged from those kind of regular mm -hmm. cervical ultrasounds. But it's actually nice to know that it's even earlier than what we're doing. So I can say we're like being super cautious with you, right? And they love yeah, to, people love to hear I, that, I think, right? So it's good to know that kind of that evidence after 28 weeks is not really there for continuing on with those serial cervical length ultrasound yeah. measurements. Awesome. Yeah. Thank there you. are actually some groups that some groups are probably even more conservative because some people think the role for the cervical length monitoring is to identify the patient who may benefit from a cerclage. And usually beyond 24 weeks or so, people are not interested to do a cerclage. And so there are some people who would even debate what's the real role for doing it after 24 weeks if you're not going to intervene 
Now, the counter to that is, well, you may identify the person who's starting to see some signs of cervical length shortening that isn't identified with symptoms that they have. And so is there a person that you might just keep a closer eye on? You know, sometimes people would consider admission to hospital for observation. There's a lot of debate about the role of that. But, you know, but certainly at 28 weeks, the the predictive uh, value of the cervical length probably declines a fair amount. Uh, just because we've talked a little bit about cerclage, for our colleagues who may not know what a cerclage is or have a good sense of kind of the evidence around it and when you might use it or not use it, a cerclage is essentially a stitch that is placed in the cervix to keep the cervix closed. And there's different right. ways of doing it. Uh, but when might you consider, again, I know this is very a very nuanced discussion and it's very much patient-specific about their history and what's going on now and whether their cervix is open or not, whether there's membranes bulging out. But ish, again, general kind of information, when might you consider a cerclage? And you don't need to discuss about the different types of cerclages because I don't think that's something that our our listeners need to no specifics around, but just the general guidelines, recommendations, when might you do it, when not, how do you take it out, when do you take it out, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So there are a couple of different pathways that we would consider cerclage. So one of them would be planned cerclage and the, the late first trimester. And that would generally be based on somebody's history that sounds very consistent with cervical insufficiency. So that would be where, you know, painless cervical dilation is identified either through ultrasound or you know, somebody might come into labor and delivery because they just noticed a big difference in their discharge or they felt lots of pressure. And then lo and behold, their cervix is quite dilated and there's no evidence of contractions or bleeding or other predisposing factors. The guidelines suggest you probably should have a history of uh, a preterm birth related to cervical insufficiency up to three times before you'd consider putting a cervical cerclage in upfront. But frankly, I can't, I find that sort of the moral um, distress around that to be very difficult to reconcile. The evidence bears out that even doing nothing, most people will not have a recurrence. And so they say you might be um, exposing people to a surgery that they don't need. But I think it's very difficult to reconcile that there is an intervention that you can do that has risks, but also is it's a reasonably safe surgery at a time in pregnancy when the cervix is long and that you'd you'll may, might have missed an opportunity to do when it, it had its lowest risk. So I my personal approach is that when patients have a history that seems quite consistent with cervical insufficiency, I would be prepared to offer a cerclage earlier that in their next pregnancy based on a good history. And that's um, when you have a good informed discussion with your patient, right? You talk yeah. about the risks and benefits of doing it. You talk about the risks and benefits of not doing it and you give them the option, right? Yeah, exactly. So that would be one category of people who would benefit. And then there's always the the person who comes to you having had a successful pregnancy with a cerclage before. So that would usually be another group of people that you would generally feel comfortable offering a cerclage to early. The subsequent group of people who benefit from a cerclage are as you're doing your monitoring or if you weren't doing monitoring, but you notice it incidentally, if their cervix is uh, short and dilated. And so it doesn't matter whether they've had a term birth before or preterm birth before, if you have a, a short dilated cervix before 24 weeks, those people probably benefit most from having a cerclage if it's safe and technically feasible to do. And again, based on the conversations you have about the patient about pros and cons. And then for people who have had an unexplained preterm birth before and who have an incidental finding of a short cervix, even if it's not dilated, but just a short cervix, 
that's another group of patients who there's uh, good evidence to suggest that they may benefit from a cervical cerclage. There's some debate about very short cervix. So if your cervix is less than 15 millimeters, is that a group of people that may benefit? There's pros and cons again and debate in the literature, but the best evidence related to a dilated cervix or a history of a short cervix in the setting of a previous unexplained preterm birth. Yeah. And technically those dilated, I've assisted at a few. Technically it looks quite challenging, the dilated, but the membranes coming out. And again, there's medicine is not black and white, right? It's shades of gray and there's lots of things that we don't necessarily appreciate about the complexities of different decisions and decision-making when we are looking either from patient or from an outpoint, outside point of view. Just always remembering when you're having discussions with patients, if you're not the one actually doing the procedure, you may not understand all of the complexities and things that we really need to take into consideration and have discussions with patients around when we're having those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. It can be a very technically challenging surgery. And, you know, we go into it with the do no harm approach. So if your membranes are significantly passing through the cervix and I'm very concerned I'm actually going to create a problem by doing the surgery, then I'll be very open with patients about that. And that, you know, sometimes doing nothing, what feels like doing nothing, I should say, is actually the better course in in certain circumstances. And, you know, you'll read literature about many different approaches. You know, does it help to drain some of that fluid so that there's less pressure? And, you know, there are small case series that suggest that that can be beneficial, but certainly you need um, some uh, specialized expertise if you're going to be considering that for sure. Yes. And so thank you for being that. I don't have to make the decision for my patients. Somebody else can have those discussions who are, that is their area of specialty and focus, right? Okay. So we've chatted. And when do the cerclages generally get taken out? Yeah. So the cerclages that we put in are things that would be removed. So if we put them in, we generally would take them out, assuming that there's no earlier indicator for birth usually around 35, 36 weeks or so of a pregnancy. The rationale is that we want to take it out timeline when labor may set in so that uh, we're not potentially risking having any tearing or damage of the cervix by having the suture in place at the time. And is that the apply also if somebody's having a planned cesarean section? Or would you take it out at the time of cesarean section? In that circumstance, we usually offer the patient the choice between the two. We would give them the opportunity to take it out ahead of time or wait to do it at the time of their surgery, whatever their preference is. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Anything else that we need to cover? I was going to ask you a question. So I have colleagues who work up northern Vancouver Island. I live in Victoria, so they're in northern Vancouver, which is relatively remote, and they don't, they can't, they are, they don't have the capacity to care for patients under 37 weeks. So anybody who goes into preterm labor has to go to a different community to deliver, which we've chatted about in our previous podcast around the stress for families and for people around that being away from your support system, especially if you, you're going to have a baby preterm. One of the strategies they've employed and is having people, even if they don't have bacteria, urinary tract infection early in pregnancy, having them do monthly urines to ensure that they don't in fact get a UTI or urinary tract infection that might precipitate preterm labor. So these are people in remote communities that are not, or either there's no physicians there or there's a nurse there who's caring for them, but they can't access urgent and emergent care or specialty care very easily. And so they're doing monthly urines to help screen for those people. Is that something that we would recommend to the general population? Or is that kind of a very specific case because these people are very remote 
it's hard for them to access care. And if they do access care, it means that they're really leaving their community for a long period of time. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think as a, a general population screening approach, there, there's probably not sufficient evidence to recommend in all contexts that would be something that would be uh, high yield, though certainly in people who may have a history of urinary tract infection related to preterm birth, doing regular screening of urine cultures during pregnancy is a, a very reasonable approach. And then I think, as you highlighted, there may be some contexts where that approach makes a lot of sense because you're trying to make sure that people receive care that can be very impactful in a timely way and that they're able to receive care within their own communities to avoid a lot of the, the stress and implications of needing to travel elsewhere if that, that can't happen. So I think in that context, it would make a lot of sense to identify things that can have a significant impact and to be able to intervene if you do find. And also, I think from just a, a costly perspective, uh, a urine culture for a small number of people for on a monthly basis over a short period of time is not a huge draw on the healthcare system. Whereas when you consider needing to travel somewhere else, deliver somewhere else, costs of prematurity and so on, on the balance of everything, you wouldn't need to prevent many preterm births for that to be a very impactful approach of helping to manage uh, patient care. Okay. Michelle, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We got through a lot today. Anything else that you wanted to add to today's podcast? Just thank you again for uh, having me uh, here to chat about some things that are near and dear to my heart. I'm a big proponent of trying to help get patients access to interventions that can make a real difference. And so hopefully this will help to spread the word of some of those things. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pregnancy for Professionals. Make sure to share this podcast with your colleagues and head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts to give us a five-star review if you think we're worth it. And also, please make sure to fill out the quick survey below to let us know what topics you want to hear more about. Have a great day.